0: But we've got a long passage um, to read through this morning from Acts, and so I'm going to get right into it, read the scripture for us, and then help us understand what to make of such an in-depth history of the Old Testament that we're going to hear about today from Stephen. All right, so the text, if you have a Bible and want to follow along, might be beneficial. It's Acts 6, verse 8. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 7 in classic style um, for me. So (laughs) Acts 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, And of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt But God was with him, and rescued him out of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine through all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit, and on the second visit... Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought, had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughters adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angels who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us from the land out of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands." but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the Book of the Prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephim, and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God And falling into his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. All right. So we've been looking through the book of Acts, and we're getting to a place where we've gone from the ideal world of Acts, where sharing and caring and everything in common to Ananias and Sapphira, so we've seen division within the church, and we've gone from this sort of idealism of the church reaching out to the community, and now we're at a place where the idealism is over outside the church, and we've got the disciples going out into the temple and encountering the high priests, and there's increasing turmoil outside of the church. We've gone from the tongues of Pentecost to healing to miracles, to even angels freeing the disciples from prison, but now we don't have the same kind of angels freeing Stephen, right? Stephen finds God, but he finds him after his death, right? He falls asleep. So the tone has darkened in Acts, and we're going to be transitioning after we get through Advent to a time of death and persecution for Christian, for Christians in Acts 8 and beyond. In this story, we have a, a similar thing that we've had in early earlier stories. We have a character contrast. The first set of characters are these twisted believers. This is the Jewish high priestly council. Like Ananias and Sapphira inside the church, these are Jewish believers outside of the church, right, who profess belief in God. But they are trying to hoard not their earnings, not money, they're trying to hoard a form of salvation and keep it just for themselves, right? They want it just for the Jews. They want it just for the sort of nationalistic tradition that they have built around the temple. So they are trying to hoard power and a claim to truth. And even though, as we're going to see, the Old Testament shows that the, the truth is of God's redemptive plan is for all humanity, even though it will come through the Jews, they've they've adopted this view that you have to come to the Jews. You have to come through the temple. And so it's helpful to view this story as realizing that Stephen is somebody who wants to decentralize the faith. And the high priests are anti-decentralization, right? They, they, they want it all around the temple. They want it all to come through them. They want to be the power brokers. And we'll see in this story that what's happening is they're missing the point. They're missing the point. It's kind of like when us pastors are threatened by other neighborhood churches Right. Or when we, as part of this church plant, are upset with our friends when they find a different church. We're kind of missing the point. Right. It's not about us. It's not about coming through us. It's not about coming to my place. It's about getting to Jesus. It doesn't matter how it happens, who it happens through And so Stephen is saying, the point is not to come through your temple and your power structure to reach God. The point is for God to reach the people and he's going to do it in whatever way he decides in the time of history that he is is doing that in. And he goes through the Old Testament history to show that. This is a major theme of the Bible because what Stephen says is he goes, look, all through history, God's been on the move. All through history, he's been moving and calling people and sending people. And all throughout history, another major theme of the Bible is that we've been missing the point. All throughout history, the Israelites were missing the point. The kings of Israel were missing the point, And now the high priests are missing the point. Sometimes I feel like even this week, even this morning, I miss the point. At cohort, Carrie, I was bemoaning something in confession. And Carrie said, you know, this is supposed to be fun. And I thought about that a bunch this week. This is supposed to be fun. How do we keep this fun? How do we keep this being in partnership with God to reach people for Christ and not feeling so hurt or insecure by the rejection if they don't want to pass through us to him? Right? If there's another avenue in which they're going to reach Jesus. So we have the contrast of these twisted believers with the true believers helmed here by Stephen. Now, Stephen, this is something important. Stephen is the first main character we have in Acts who is not a Jewish-speaking Christian natively, right? He doesn't grow up in the Jewish culture. He's a Hellenized Jew, which means he speaks Greek. Okay? And he's come probably from the diaspora around Jerusalem and has is is thoroughly like Jewish, has adopted that, but he grew up like outside the culture. Right? It's like if you, maybe the best example is if you have somebody immigrate into the U.S., speaks a foreign language, right? They're still firmly a Christian. Maybe they go to a Hispanic or an Asian church, but they have like a different cultural underpinning. And that's where Stephen's coming from. And so Stephen, even by his identity, is a threat to the Jewish-speaking Jewish high priest. He's a, he's a sign that, that, that things are starting to break down culturally, that there is not like a nationalistic cultural tone to the church, that now it's actually leaking out, and which, which, by the way, was the mission all along for the church. But the high priests are missing the point. So Stephen's like the kind of guy that says, Oh, you want to go to a church? Does that church preach Jesus? Love that you're going to that church. Please keep going to that church. I go to this church. I'm so happy we're both going to church. That's what Stephen's saying. And Stephen, it says, is full of grace and power, wisdom in the Holy Spirit, and his face is like an angel. So we have here a story of angels versus demons because what do the high priests act like? They act as demonic as you could possibly see, right? They could not stand wisdom and they secretly instigated men with false witnesses, who told that they who told that, that, that Stephen was heard speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, blasphemy is like the highest level. It's like treasonous. You know, it's the highest level of sin. And so they seized him by force and they brought him before the council. Now the high priests are a warning of what can, what does, and what will happen to us as Christians if we miss the point and keep steam rolling our life down the wrong road with the same religious, righteous, pious figure. And it's a great harm to others and ourselves. Pastor and author Tony Campolo writes, if we were to set out to establish a religion in polar opposition to the Beatitudes Jesus taught, it would look strikingly similar the pop Christianity that has taken over the airwaves of North America. That's missing the point. If you're not acting like Jesus to defend people, to defend Jesus, if you're attacking people to defend Jesus, if you're going against the Beatitudes in the name of your faith, I think you're missing the point. And so we do this all the time. I think it... Uh, as I've said over and over, we ought to identify first with the high priests in the story and check ourselves. Because often we, act, we react to people as if we're sure we're right. And then when we're accused of being wrong about something really important to us, we wanna take them down, just because they're attacking the thing that's important to us. And that's, that's idolatry, the most, the most insidious form of idolatry Right? Idolatry is when you want something so much you will act unlike Jesus to get it or keep it. That's idolatry. You know that thing's an idol if you will act unlike the way of Jesus in order to defend or keep that thing. Now what's so insidious is when that thing that you're defending is Jesus and you will act unlike Jesus to keep it, you've made an idol out of the church. You've made an idol out of your religion. We're swimming in it, and it's right here in the book of Acts. Julia Gallif, who's an author and researcher, gave a TED Talk called Why You Think You're Right Even When You're Wrong. (laughs) Why You Think You're Right Even When You're Wrong. And she talks about something called the soldier mindset, and she tells the story. Noah, if you can throw this next slide up. This is a story from 19th century France, and I'm just going to read some of this story for you. She writes this, an innocuous-looking piece of torn-up paper launched one of the biggest political scandals in history in 1894. Officers and the French general staff found it in a waste paper basket, and when they pieced it back together, they discovered that someone in their ranks had been selling military secrets to Germany. They launched a big investigation, and their suspicions quickly converged on one man, Alfred Dreyfus. He had a sterling record, no past history of wrongdoing, no motive as far as they can tell. However, Dreyfus was the only Jewish officer at the ranks in the army. And unfortunately, at the time, the French army was highly anti-Semitic. The other officers compared Dreyfus's handwriting to that on the paper and concluded it was a match, even though outside professional handwriting experts were much less confident about the similarity. They searched Dreyfus's apartment, went through his files, looking for signs of espionage. They didn't find anything. This just convinced him that not only was Dreyfus guilty, but he was also sneaky, because clearly he had hidden all the evidence. They looked through his personal history for incriminating details. They talked to his former teachers and learned he had studied foreign languages in school, which demonstrated to them a desire to conspire with foreign governments later in life. His teachers also said that Dreyfus had had a good memory, which was highly suspicious since a, fi- a spy must remember a lot of things. The case went to trial and Dreyfus was found guilty. Afterwards, officials took him out into the public scare- square. They ritualistically tore his insignia from his uniform and broke his sword into. This was called the degradation of Dreyfus. He was sentenced to life imprisonment on the aptly named Devil's Island, this barren rock off the coast of South America, and he spent his days there alone, writing letter after letter to the French government, begging them to reopen his case so they could discover his innocence. While you might guess that Dreyfus had been set up or intentionally framed by his fellow officers, historians today don't think that's what happened. As far as they can tell, the officers genuinely believed that the case against Dreyfus was strong. So the question arises, she writes, what does it say about the human mind that we can find such paltry evidence to be compelling enough to convict a man? This is a case of what scientists refer to as motivated reasoning, a phenomenon in which our unconscious motivations, desires, and fears shape the way we interpret information. Some pieces of information feel like our allies. We want them to win. We want to defend them. And other pieces of information are the enemy, and we want to shoot them down. That's why it's called motivated. That's why I call, she writes, this motivated reasoning, a soldier mindset. Times article in 2006 finishes off this story, for those that are interested, and there's twists and turns. Dreyfus left the army in 1907, rejoined it in World War I, then led a fairly uneventful life until his death in 1935. Seems like a happy ending. Yet only five years later, during the French occupation of France, anti-Semitism became official policy as the collaborationist Vichy government helped to deport 76,000 Jews, including Dreyfus's granddaughter, to Nazi death camps. Right. Motivated reasoning, the soldier mindset is alive and well in all of us. Now, it hasn't resulted in prison or death camp sentences or anything, but I'm not proud to say that I read this and I've witnessed and participated in or held myself plenty of times a soldier mindset towards other people. Motivated reasoning in defense of what I believe is right and good. And it has allowed me to act in ways that are unlike the way of Jesus. Stephen, because of his identity, because he was culturally outside, because he represented a threat by his very identity. Was, that they felt that he was seeking to decentralize the Jewish tradition into one that no longer required the temple, that no longer required them and needed them to be the center of its power and to be the arbiters of its truth. It was kind of like a revolutionary presented a threat. And so Stephen, in his defense, gives one of the longest retellings of the Old Testament in the New Testament. They say, are these things so? And he goes through this whole retelling of history to try and point out to them how their own history that they proclaim is showing that it's not the case that the temple is not the final and ultimate place that they are actually incorrect by their own reasoning the point of the speech that he's ans- the point of the speech is to answer the accusation is he blaspheming against the temple and the law And he does this, I think, by freeing some of the Old Testament story. Now, you have to have kind of read a lot of the Old Testament over time to be able to really compare these two things. And I know not all of us can do that, right? Not all of us have that kind of locked in going, oh, he's telling that in a different way. So I'm going to tell you what I believe he's doing by comparing these two things, by reading commentators who have compared these between the histories and the scriptures we have and the things he's emphasizing. I think he's freeing the Old Testament story from some of the typical religious language that's used so that we can see what that language means. We do this all the time, okay? We, we adopt languages from the church to apply them to real life, so that we can understand what those words mean. One that we've used a lot is churching, right? We'll say, hey, we went over and had dinner at our friend's house on a Wednesday night. It was so fun, churching together, right? That's us taking and saying, this is what the church is. The church isn't Sunday morning, The church is this behavior and we just did it, right? So we're freeing that language. We're we're sort of liberating it and saying, this is what this language actually meant, but it's been locked in an understanding in our mind that made it a cliche and made it shallow and, and vanilla, right? Another one that we've done is we've called something Papa Murphy's ministry, right? If you drop off a Papa Murphy's pizza, so that's that's Papa Murphy's ministry, right? It's it's just a way of saying a nice thing that I'm doing is actually ministry, right? I'm actually doing ministry right now. Or we t- do it the other way around and we take and we take churchy language and we take it and we spin it the other way so we can start to see what it really is and get it out of all the baggage it represents. Evangelism has too much baggage. So let's just say we're talking about God, right? Let's take and let's get to the heart of what the language means. And that's what Stephen's doing. He's saying the heart of the Old Testament story is about this, and you've made it into something else. And now because of your misunderstanding of the temple, you're not able to run the temple for its actual intended purpose. So what is the temple? These people... The high priests were convinced God's presence resided in the temple, that that was its ultimate resting place, that the temple was where God's presence was, and they needed to preserve that place because it was holy and good and right. So Stephen walks through this text and shows how God is wherever God wants to be. You can't put God in a box, right? You can't decide where God fits and where he lives and where he's going to be. So he starts at chapter seven, verse one, and he says, the God of glory appeared to our father. So first of all, God comes from without and reveals himself as the ruler of creation. And then he appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia near Babylon. So God shows up in Babylon, right? And then in verse seven, they shall come worship me in this place, he says. And he calls them towards Mount Sinai, where he's residing, not the temple, Mount Sinai. In verse, verse 30, an angel appears to Moses on Sinai. So we've got holy ground, the voice of God coming from there. God is not in the tabernacle. He's not in the temple. None of those things even exist yet. And he's even in Babylon and he's in Egypt. It says, verse, verse 34, I've seen people in Egypt. I've heard them groaning and I'm coming down to deliver them. And then in verse 44, we've got the tent of witness in the wilderness, the tabernacle, God's promise. And so we've got God now beginning to dwell in a place, and it's to be a witness. The tabernacle is to be a representation of God to the cultures around. The whole idea of God's presence dwelling is to witness. It's to witness to the people of Israel, but also the people of Israel, to witness to the people around them. We've been using that word witness a lot in Acts. And then they bring that tabernacle up with Joshua. Joshua when they go into the promised land. So God is on the move, traveling through the land, not locked in one building in one place. He's traveling through the land with his people. And so Stephen is remembering that, and he's saying that's like Acts 1-8, when Jesus commands, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he's coming and he's smashing that up against the high priest's calcified, reducted view of the temple in Jerusalem being it. Everybody should come. We have church. We open the doors. Their job is to come in. Stephen's reversing the paradigm. He's flipping church upside down. He's saying, no, we go out. We open the doors and we go out, right? Right and we reach everyone else. It's a completely <laughs> opposite paradigm. See how easy it is for us to fall into the high priestly paradigm. We open the doors, they're welcome, they can come in, we'll do our thing, right? He says, opposite day. We are flipping it, we are getting out. This is what the Old Testament history actually shows that the people of Israel are to do and what God is always doing. Then he even shows how in verse 7, verse 45, sorry, chapter 7, that it goes that way all the way till David. David really, really wants to build a temple for a lot of good reasons. But he's also king, and he has Jerusalem, he has the city of God, Zion, and he says, this is is where I want you to live. And God says, nope, nope, I want to let that simmer. And then Solomon builds it. Solomon builds it, yet Solomon even realizes that, who's he kidding? God doesn't live in one place. So in 1 Kings 8, he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? This is Solomon talking after he built, he's built this most amazing temple. But will God in- indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So we see how Stephen is just underlining, you're missing the point. So today our first takeaway is, guys, we can be easily missing the point because of our motivated reasoning. Remember how she described that. A phenomenon in which our unconscious motivations, desires, and fears shape the way we interpret information. Some will feel like our allies and we want them to win. Others are our enemies, and we want to shoot them down. And it makes us blind. And what happens is when we begin to get married to those things we love, we can lose sight of God's goals. So the priests have gotten invested in the temple. They got car payments. They got big loans on this building. They've got to make this thing work. But the anointing has left And God's on the move, right? He's anointed Christ. We're going to get to that. He's anointed Stephen. And Stephen's supposed to get out, out of the walls of the normal. The church is not a building. In Eugene Peterson's biography, um, which I'm reading through right now, he, he, his first, um, so he wrote the message, that's how most people know him. He was, he was a, what, what he calls a pastor theologian. He just really believed that in order to do the work of God, you had to pastor as well as write, as well as other things you just couldn't, you couldn't really write unless you had that traction of the everyday of experiencing people. And he had a deep love and he found a deep love for people. He planted his first church And he called it the catacombs because it was in the basement of his like mid-century ranch house. And if you've ever been in any of those basements, they have like the half high windows, you know, and he was down there and he would do church every week with people just coming down into his basement, which at first was just cement. And so then they raised enough money to build their first building, Christ Our King Church, Bel Air, Maryland. They build and they break ground and they build this amazing building and he writes all about it. And it sounds incredible. And they get done with it. And they have booming engagement when they're building the building. High attendance. People are coming in. Everybody's donating. And then they finish it. And he enters what he calls the Badlands. People just stop coming. They show up every fourth week. They go, man, this building's great, isn't it? We're going to head out, you know, for camping next weekend. And totally disengage. And he goes through seven years of just sort of a tepid, response to the church it's done we built it we built the church and so he talks to another pastor and he goes you want to get you want to get your people engaged he goes just build more just build another building they'll come back they'll get totally into it just keep building buildings they want to see something grow that's theirs they want to be able to touch it right they want to be able to own it They want to be able to package and own and decorate God for themselves. It's a kind of golden calf. And that's what Stephen goes through in this story. Tony Campalo again, he says, Jesus never says to the poor, come find the church. But he says to those of us in the church, go into the world and find the poor, the hungry, the homeless, the imprisoned. So we're missing the point. The second big point is the point is to strike out into the unknown, to head out all of this history, everything we're talking about. Get out away from one's home, away from one's sense of the temple and see that God will be leading and providing for you. Verse three, go out from the land. And then Abraham's father dies and he doesn't even give him what he promised. God doesn't give him a child. In fact, his promise is first, you're gonna have 400 years of slavery for your people. Talk about a daunting mission. I'm supposed to keep going in service of God and he's promised my my descendants to be enslaved for 400 years. That's not very exciting to get into, to commit to for 400 years. So we see that God will be intentionally sometimes leading us, knowing that we're going to have to be led into places of rejection, sometimes for generations, for the sake of the kingdom. Verse 9 Joseph goes into new lands in Egypt, but how does he go in? He's sold into slavery by murderous brothers, but he's rescued, and he's given position, and he's asked to serve the Egyptians but it's to redeem his people, to redeem them in famine. And so we start to see with Joseph the first sign of God's mediators, his priests, his shepherds who care for others. Verse 17, we have Pharaoh who forces the Israelites to leave their infants out to exposure, which is a common form of ancient infanticide, to die. And so God employs saviors even by other means with Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 23, Moses gets out of the courts of Egypt. And he thinks, "Okay, I'm going to get out and I'm going to get my people out of here. But then we see something interesting. Moses doesn't have the anointing yet. Moses is getting out. He's got, okay, I'm going to strike out. Okay, I'm going to get out. I'm going to get my people out. I see, I love them. I want them to be out of slavery. I see the prophecy here that they are to be coming out, but God isn't with Moses yet. And so the people actually deny Moses. And Moses has to go through this whole Reformation project in Midian where he has to find God himself. So he goes out and he waits, and God finds him in verse 30. And now Moses is ready, now that God has found Moses and called him. But now the Israelites, because they're used to the identity, they've rejected this guy once for murdering an Egyptian. This guy's impulsive, he's not a good leader. So they've got that planted deep in their mind and it says, verse 35, this Moses whom the Israelites rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angels who appeared to him in the bush. So these three words are important when we think about our identity and the identity of those who save God's people throughout the story of the Old Testament. Rejected. Ruler, redeemer. Three R's. Moses is a rejected ruler and redeemer. He's not a ruler in his own right. He's a ruler because he follows under the rule of God. That's what makes a true ruler. A true king, a true ruler, somebody worth following, is somebody who has put themselves under the rule of God. And it's just the case with rulers that anytime you rule under the authority of God, you will be rejected. You can plan on being rejected. But this is the method that God uses for his redeemers. Okay, so then we get to, to Stephen's third big point. His people have a tendency to fall in love with the past, comfort with history, with the known, with what they make with their own hands. And in doing so, we, they reject him. We reject God. A coach told me the other day, he goes, you know, the only problem we have with God is that he thinks he's God. We have a problem with being told what to do. And it shows our motivated reasoning is so often for ourselves and what we believe is good for ourselves, not for the goal and the mission of what God is after. So when they reject Moses, when the Israelites refuse to obey him, And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Remember, they're speaking of Moses, but they're actually speaking of God. So the high priests here are speaking of Stephen, saying he's blaspheming of God. But Luke is making it very clear. He's full of the spirit. When they are saying he's blaspheming of God, they're they're rejecting God. And so Stephen says in verse 51, you stiff necked people uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your father did, so do you. What does that uncircumcised in hearts and ears mean? It means that they haven't kept the promise of following God inside, with what they hear, with what they say, with what they do. Even though they may have physically changed their body to check a box, they haven't, it hasn't resulted in a permanent heart change. And so what, what Stephen's doing is he's trying to get under the language. He's saying the circumcision is not, is not it. It's the circumcision of the heart, which is actually something Moses does in Deuteronomy. He's getting under the language of what the law is, and he says, you don't follow the law. He just says it straight up. You don't follow the law. You've always broken it and turned from it as your fathers did before you because the law is God's revealed word. The law is God's mission for witness and you're not doing it. And so what do they do? They cry out with a loud voice, stop their ears and rush together. They just, they don't want to deal with it anymore. There's too much to give up. There's too much to sacrifice if he's right. So, we've talked about how their temple has become a golden calf, just as the church becomes a golden calf for us. They want to stay put instead of striking out. And they have a tendency, just as we do, to begin to look at our leaders and eventually God, because we're so sure of our right ways that we say, Who made you ruler and judge? Who made you ruler and judge? So how does this work out for us? What are the applications here for us? When we are working out, so these applications happen for us right when we're living out within God's redemptive plan. And I want to spell this out for a second. Your life at this moment, where you're at this moment, the house you live in, the job you have, the friends you have, is the way God is working out the redemptive plan for your life at this moment. You are in the plan God has to redeem and send you out. You're living in it. So, when we are discontent and we say it is not enough, which is the root of envy, or what I heard a pastor call nostalgic death spirals, I like that. When you're just going into the fantasies of the past and spiraling around into darkness, wishing where you made the wrong turn, why is my life this way? It was so good. What happened? It was better in Egypt. Yeah, we were in slavery, but we had better food. Not this manna stuff that comes every night we can't even save on, like we can't even hold on to it. I don't even know what's gonna happen tomorrow. It was so much better than, ah, slavery. Before Christ, it was so much better. I didn't have to do all this church stuff. I could say, I could just choose what I want to do in my life. I could do whatever I want. Oh, the, sin of, the slavery of sin. Pfft. You see how we're in slavery when we're apart from Christ. And when we want what he doesn't want for us, we want to go back there. But what we don't, well, some of us see that. Some of us see that and we can knock ourselves out of that discontentment and we can get positive and whatever. But it also happens when we hoard Redemption. Mm. it's a tightrope oh this worship feels so good oh that cohort was so good I want more of that I just need more of that in my life oh that podcast was so good man can I just get more of those oh that sermon was so good I'm going to listen to another one Brian McLaren who writes a book called A Generous Orthodox I don't agree with everything Brian McLaren says he's part of the emerging church movement but he says some good things here He says this, the more one respects Jesus, the more one must be brokenhearted, embarrassed, furious, or some combination thereof. When one considers what we Christians have done with Jesus, that's certainly true when it comes to calling Jesus Lord, something we Christians do a lot, often without the foggiest idea of what we mean. Has he become, I shudder to ask this, less our Lord and more our mascot? more something we wave around as a righteous symbol like the high priest did with the temple. I'm right, you can't touch me. I'm on this guy's team. Or is he actually our Lord? Then they write again, him and and Campolo, are we merely creating religious consumers of religious products and programs? Are we creating a self-perpetuating, self-centered subculture instead of a world-penetrating, world-serving, world-transforming, God-centered counterculture. It's true that Jesus loves you, but he loves you for his sake and not yours. That's that's a hard truth. It's true that Jesus loves you, but he loves you for his sake and not yours. You're a sinner. He doesn't love your sin, but he wants to make you clean. He loves the you that he made you to be, and that you is going to be getting out. That you is going to be flipping this paradigm upside down. So instead of thinking about how something benefits ourselves, we're thinking about how it is a balm for humanity. If, If that sermon was so good for me, who else could it be good for? If this cohort was so good for me, who else could it be good for? If that worship on Sunday was so good or that message was so good, who else could it be good for? And we get out and we trust that God will provide for us when we get out and do the scary, hard stuff of dealing with even potential rejection. Some of us, I mean, we've all dealt with rejection. I'm talking like we're so rejected at this point, we can't even deal with potential rejection. The idea of even, it's like when you were in like, I don't know, high school, and I'll just talk from my point of view, I couldn't even ask the girl out. I was so petrified of rejection. Couldn't even like deal with if it was no, so I just never did it, right? I think that's how we're becoming with our faith. And what I'm trying to say and shake us loose from myself included is, it's not the way. It's not the way of Jesus. How does it end? It actually ends in going into a murderous rage against anyone who pricks you and bothers you and begins, and actually we will become jealous of people who are out sharing Jesus. Because deep down we know that's what what it's about. So Christians all over this country, including ourselves, are guilty of acting for Jesus without acting like Jesus. And we need so much help. We need so much help. Fortunately, God brings helpers. All throughout history, he brings helpers. And Stephen shows that. Who's bringing the people out of the slavery? Moses, as a mediator, as somebody who stands in the gap between the Israel that must be and the Israel that is and he sacrifices for them. He actually goes on behalf of Israel. It's such a powerful, powerful part of the story. If you go and read Exodus 32 through 34 sometime this week and just read that whole golden calf story, gosh, Israel falls so hard with the golden calf. And Moses is undone by it. First, he's just totally angry. Throws the tablets, just frustrated beyond belief, makes him drink, grinds down the golden calf and makes him drink powdered gold. Like, the guy loses it. Because it's so off base, they're so missing the point. But then he goes before God realizing, not just theirs, but his anger, all of it, the whole mess, he goes, you have no reason to save any of us. Like, I get it, no reason. You, if I were you, I wouldn't, right? But God, you made a promise to us. You made a promise. And so in Exodus 32, verse 30 through 33, he says, but now if you will forgive their sin, Israel's, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. He goes, I will stand in the gap. If you aren't gonna forgive the sins of them, take my life too. You've called me as a righteous one. You've said I'm your anointed. If you won't give them another chance, I will die for it. That's what a mediator does, a ruler, a redeemer who gets comfortable with the idea of rejection, who wants to bring the people out of slavery. And so what do we have? We have Stephen who is following Jesus, who wants to bring the people out of the slavery of the law by fulfilling it. And what Jesus, what Stephen shows in this text, the core principle of this long text, is that Christ is the fulfillment of the temple and the law. The temple is supposed to be the meeting place, the presence of God dwelling among the people on the move. Christ is the meeting place. Matthew 12, verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, he says. Christ is the revelation from God, the presence, the holy ground, where we need to take our sandals off. The righteous one, the temple was leading towards, is Christ. And then Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The whole point of the whole story is Jesus. Jesus. So what happens is that he supersedes all of it. He says, all of this was leading up to me. I'm the greater version of all this, and I am the greater Moses. I am the greater mediator that stands in the gap. I am the greater one who says, take me. If you're going, if God, if you're not going to forgive them, then take me with them. That's what Jesus says. He stands in the gap on behalf of God says, I can't do that. You've been the perfect witness, the perfect version of my presence of the temple. You followed the law perfectly and you say that it's worth it to keep them. I will do it. I will forgive their sins. So what the great reformer John Calvin said is he said, "No harm can be done to the temple and the law when Christ is openly established as the end and the truth of both of these things." And Stephen, aptly, puts this argument together so tightly that he validates Christ on the authority of the high priest. The high priests say, "We follow Moses." And Stephen says, "Moses prophesied in this guy. He's the one." He's the prophet that Moses talks about. That one day will come. The righteous one, the Messiah. And he performs the ultimate role of the mediator that Moses was. He is the greater one who frees not from the slavery of Egypt, but from the slavery of sin itself. He was the plan all along. And if we miss Jesus, we miss the point. That's the message to the high priest. So, that's the point. That's the point, you guys. The big idea of the character of God is that he is a good ruler who we rejected who wants to redeem us. That's the life story we're living. We have rejected the great ruler of the universe and he wants to redeem us. So now when our friends reject us because we follow, because we follow the great ruler, we know that they're simply doing what we've already done. And we can give grace for that just as God has given grace for us. Now, if they reject us because we're not acting like Jesus, we should be really critical, right? We shouldn't just assume that we're always acting like Jesus because we're a Christian. But if we're being rejected because we're pointing to Jesus and people don't want that, we need to get used to that. So I just want to give this quick application for what a Sunday worship is for us and what I think it should be moving forward as we think about Sundays. I was talking last uh, Friday night with a group of friends and one of them is on an elder board in another church. And he was bemoaning that the high point for church seems to be Sunday morning. Right. We We all get ready and we come and it's the culmination of our week is Sunday. Right. And then usually there's like a big letdown on Monday. Right. We go through like warfare all week. And then we like come through and we have that culmination of Sunday, right? Especially at churches where they have like big worship services and like a real euphoric high, right? It's easy to see how we got there. That's kind of that temple mindset. But what if we begin to structure Sundays as the huddle before the big game? What if this time is us getting together in a huddle? And saying, okay, guys, here's the game plan for the week. The game plan is we're getting out. The game plan for tomorrow and for this week, all the way until Sunday, is we're gonna go run plays. I'm not a sports guy, but you know what I mean. (laughs) We're gonna get out there and we're gonna do stuff, and then we're gonna come back on Sunday and we're gonna huddle again. How did it go? What do we need? and to treat cohorts that way, and to treat our touch points as huddles so that we can get out there. And I know we actually do this well with things like Tuesday, but perhaps our Sundays need to be thought more about how do I get sent out and come back again for the huddle and experience Christ's presence and rest with me. And I think this is my my big encouragement to you. You don't have to defend yourself. We don't have to defend ourselves, we're gonna screw up. Our job and our life and our purpose in our life is not to defend our own actions, but we spend so much emotional headspace trying to figure out how we're actually right. We know we're wrong, we know we blew it, we knew we said we were supposed to do that and we did another thing, we know we hid something that we did that we tell people not to do, we know. We don't have to defend ourselves. Our job all week this week is just to go demonstrate Jesus and point how He's the better, the better mediator, the better ruler, the better redeemer. Let's pray. God, um, just pray that you would speak to everybody here listening, that you would set a fire in our hearts. Um, to think outside the box underneath the language that we're living, to consider the habits and the rituals that we've formed, to consider the time and places we're spending our energy, and to help us think about how to get out and not worry so much about defending our righteousness, defending our viewpoints, but God, to just be relying on you to work on witnessing you by our behaviors and our actions and our speech and let you do the rest, God. Just let you do the rest and have your way in this world and move in this space. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.